Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Renowned as a printer, scientist, and diplomat, Benjamin Franklin also published more works on religious topics than any other 18th century American layperson. As Thomas Kidd reveals in Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father, published by Yale University Press in 2018, Franklin's attitude towards religion was far more complex than is often assumed. Thomas Kidd is research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, and a senior research scholar at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. For of religion, I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure. Well, uh, most of my writing uh, thus far has been on religion and the, the colonial and revolutionary period of American history. Um, I've sort of gone back and forth between writing about uh, the Great Awakening, a series of revivals in America in the 1740s, uh, and then the American Revolutionary Period, which is 30 years later in the 1770s and the 80s. And in America, uh, there there's really uh, few historical topics that are as politically controversial as the role of religion in the American founding. And there's lots of discussion in American uh, politics and on social media about is America founded as a Christian nation? And, uh, you know, were the founding fathers Christians or were they atheists and agnostics? Um, and and I think that that Franklin is is a especially good case study about this because, you know, Franklin said that he was a deist in his autobiography, so that's a pretty good place to start about thinking about Franklin's religious commitments. But he also grew up in a very traditional uh, Puritan family in in Boston, and so in Franklin's person, I think you have that kind of tension between traditional religion and then skepticism that that influences at least a number of the major founding fathers in America. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I was just fascinated by trying to map out what exactly Franklin's uh, religious influences and why, why he was so uh, interested in religion and theology, as you said, uh, that he ends up publishing probably more as an author on religious topics than any other uh, non-minister in 18th century America. So he was he was deeply committed to this topic, even though he said he was a deist. Uh, and so I thought that was worth investigating. Right. And so your book, in a sense, is coming to kind of correct or, 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 or the, uh, the uh, historical perception of Franklin, or at least the common perception of Franklin. Um, what is the uh, before we correct it, what is the common perception regarding Franklin's religious faith? 
Well, uh, I think some of it is certainly guided by what he says about his own uh, faith or lack thereof in the autobiography. Uh, the autobiography of Ben Franklin is one of the best selling books in American history and, and has an enormous global uh, readership for sure. Um, and there he tells a story about uh, growing up in this devout Puritan family in Boston, um, but he is a voracious reader. And so as, as a, especially as a teenager, he begins to read uh, sometimes at his own father's suggestion. His father, of course, is very devout in trying to get him to be a traditional Christian, but uh, his, his father um, even gives him some uh, deistic writings that are at least against, uh, written against traditional Christian belief. And Franklin, uh, you know, ends up thinking that the deist argument is more persuasive. And so uh, there is, I, I think, from people who come at it from that angle, there there's a perception that this is sort of just a classic story uh, which in some ways is true about Franklin, that that uh, person who grows up in a devout family and then gets exposed to more skeptical writings uh, becomes a, a skeptic or a deist himself in, in Franklin's case. Um, but I, I think that Franklin, I mean, the, as you would expect, the autobiography is very stylized and it, it leaves out a lot of important things. Um, and and But even within the autobiography, you, you find out, for instance, that, that Franklin is very close with uh, the most important evangelical revivalist and, and evangelist in, in the 18th century, uh, George Whitfield, who is the leading preacher of the Great Awakening in the mid-1800s in Britain and America. Um, and so it just kind of raises question, like, what sort of deist is, is longtime friends with the most Im- important preacher of the mid 18th century and why did they have that friendship? Um, so there, there's a lot more to the story, I think, than just this simple, you know, kind of you know, Puritan boy reads skeptical writings and then sort of loses his faith. Right. And so you mentioned that, that Franklin grew up in a Puritan family. For listeners who are not familiar, could you tell us a little bit about Puritan religion um, and how, well, let's let's start with that. <laughs> Sure. So uh, the the New England colonies, Massachusetts and Connecticut in particular, are founded by uh, you know, these the English Puritans who are uh, part of the English Reformation, the Protestant movement. But they're but they're very strong on Reformation doctrine and are critical of the uh, established Church of England, uh, which is the official church of uh, of England uh, at the time and still is today. Um, that they do not think that the Church of England is sufficiently reformed in uh, in alignment with biblical models about the way the church should run, and and also they they are uh, you know Calvinists theologically, so they believe in things like predestination uh, as far as you know God has predestined uh, the people who are going to be saved to to salvation and left everyone else to their own uh, devices, which basically means going to hell. Uh, and, uh, and and so uh, they're very intense Protestants among among the English, and so part of their uh, dissatisfaction with the church situation in England leads leads a group of the Puritans to found Massachusetts and, and Connecticut, uh, and to commit those colonies to what they saw as biblical uh, true Christianity. 
Um, and that leaves a, a, a very deep imprint on the New England colonies and then later states. And so uh, Franklin's parents come to uh, Massachusetts in the 1670s uh, as Puritan settlers, and um, they're, they're believed certainly in the religious uh, mission of those, of those colonies. And so that's the environment in which Franklin grows up. It is, uh, it's intense, uh, deeply committed. Uh, they're going to church twice a week and, and hearing a very lengthy, deeply theological uh, sermons. And so one of the effects that this has on Franklin is that he knows the Bible uh, the the you know Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. He knows the the, the English text of the King James version uh, backwards and forwards. He he has much of it committed to memory, um, and uh, and it shapes the way that he thinks and writes and talks and uh, his many of the you know Franklin was a great conversationalist, and so when he's telling stories and 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 all this, I mean it, it's often with reference to the Bible. Um, and so probably among the major founders, uh, Ben Franklin knows the, the Bible itself, the text of the Bible, the best among, uh, I would say, the major the major founders, and that's because of his Puritan background. Right. And um, uh, how um, tolerant was the Puritan church and the Puritan um, you know, colonies uh, towards religious diversity at the time? Uh, not tolerant. Um, uh, that, of course, there's not very many groups, uh, Christian groups at the time that were tolerant of, of religious difference. Um, this is one of the reasons why John Locke's writings on religion in the 1690s are, are you know, pathbreaking in the way that they are, is that, is that Locke and people like him begin to propose that, uh, you, you know, we don't have to persecute people uh, you know, but because of religious differences, although Locke thinks that uh, that that the limits of toleration end at the limits of Protestantism, he doesn't think that Protestants should tolerate Catholics. But but still, um, Catholics didn't tolerate Protestants at the time, and Protestants didn't tolerate Catholics, and different kinds of Protestants were unacceptable. And so, uh, in in Massachusetts, for instance. Uh, it, until the Glorious Revolution, which which happens in in Massachusetts in 1689, um, they they banned uh, the Puritans banned basically all other kinds of Protestant groups and Catholics and Jews, uh, and 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 so the, the, their limits of toleration are are very narrow. I do think that the Puritans probably are stereotyped as being uh, uniquely intolerant. I don't I don't think that that's true. Uh, but Franklin certainly grows up in an environment where religious difference was not viewed very uh, kindly. Right. And you mentioned that um, Franklin uh, was an avid reader of, of the Bible. What other books did Franklin read in his youth and what impact did they have on his religious outlook? Well, Franklin uh, was a, a very bright uh, boy and voracious reader, and so in some ways he would just read whatever he could get his hands on, um, and and virtually any topic. But that certainly included uh, religion. Um, it, like so many children at that time, he read uh, John Bunyan's *The Pilgrim's Progress*. Which, speaking of best-selling books in world history, that's that's another one, and and uh, it's a, a, a an allegory of the Christian's progress to to heaven. 
but but uh, very compelling for a boy like like Franklin. And and he referred back to Bunyan and, and Pilgrim's Progress many times in his adulthood in a very admiring way. Uh, Bunyan was a type of Puritan too, um, but but uh, but Franklin loved reading uh, Bunyan and 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 uh, but but anything you can imagine, uh, uh, Franklin is reading, and so th- this is partly why uh, he's he's reading uh, anti-deistic writers as a teenager, and then he's reading deist writers, um, and and you can see that he's really on a search to. Uh, and this is a sort of classic move of people who who grow up in religiously devout families that, you know, maybe in your teens or in college or something like that. No, Franklin has almost no formal education at all, uh, but but he's he's reading lots and lots of things, and you can you can see that in his teen years, he's he's trying to discover well what do I believe about Christianity my, myself, uh, and he he comes to a very different. Conclusions than what his parents believe and what some of his siblings, who remain devout uh, traditional Christians, uh, believe, and and his parents are pretty concerned about um, about him and are you know are praying for him to come back. Um, and and he, I think, as as an older adult, does gravitate somewhat back towards his parents' uh, sort of traditional Calvinist Puritan faith. Uh, but he never he never gets back certainly to being a, a a fully traditional Christian himself, right? And you note that early uh, on in his life, Franklin embraced deism. What exactly does deism consist of? Well, deism can mean a lot of different things in eighteenth-century uh, America and Britain. Um, the term is is discussed really more than probably that there are actual atheists or ideas, uh, and in that way, it's it's similar to atheism, which is a term that's used a lot in the, in the 18th century, um, and, and much more than there are actual atheists. But there, there are larger numbers of deists uh, and self-described deists in the 18th century. But uh, that term can mean a, a wide range of, of theological beliefs and convictions. Today, we, we tend to think of deism as uh, the, the belief in kind of a, the clockmaker God is the stereotypical um, meaning of this, that, that you have uh, people who believe that God is still the creator, um, but that God is not involved anymore in human history and human affairs, so that God... Uh, like the you know the the clockmaker the the cosmic clockmaker has has created the world and created humankind, but now is kind of off doing something else and God is not not involved anymore. Maybe God sort of lost interest in what uh, people are doing or something. But but he he's not he's not involved anymore in our lives. I I, I don't think though that that's Franklin's brand of deism so much. I, I think that Franklin, um, especially after he goes through a pretty skeptical, uh, a deeply, intensely skeptical phase as a young man, um, but f- from from the time he, he comes back to America, he goes to England for a while in his uh, late teens, early 20s, um, but but when he comes back to America and he's around um, his his relatives who tend to be more traditional Christians, I, I think that, that Franklin sort of resolves to be more of a 
um, what we might call a kind of ethical Christian in the sense that he believes that Jesus's ethics are, are very important and valid, but he's not, he's not really that interested anymore in, in, uh, you know, doctrinal debates about Christianity. And so, um, Franklin, I think for, for, from that point forward, is okay with the idea that, that God is providentially involved in human history and, 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 and including in the events that are leading up eventually to the founding of the United States. Uh, I think Franklin is pretty comfortable with the idea that God is involved somehow, um, though he, he's, he's less certain that people can always tell what God is doing. And so uh, Franklin is given to kind of making jokes about how people always think God, God is on their side and politics or in war or something like that, but that, you know, God can't possibly be on sort of everybody's side at the same time. And so he'll kind of joke about that, about how silly it is to always be saying that God is, has, you know, led you to win the battle because, you know, you're as likely to lose the battle the next next time. But um, but I, I think that Franklin still is basically a providentialist um, and, and, and thinking, especially as he gets into the, you know, the depths of the American Revolution and all the amazing things that are happening uh, to him and his colleagues in the American Revolution, I, I think he would readily concede that God must be doing something uh, to, to be behind the founding of the United States. I mean, how, how could he not be? I mean, this is so amazing what's, what's happening in the independent United States is so improbable that he thinks, well, God has to be behind this somehow. Right. And um, who is Mrs. Silence Duguid, and how did she get her name? So Franklin, in his early writing, is is uh, is often taking on uh, pen names, and uh, Silence Duguid is is uh, one of his pen names uh, when he's writing in his early writing career, and it's a a pen name that he uses to uh, to basically to criticize the the. Uh, the pastors in Massachusetts for uh, their religious hypocrisy and so forth. And it, it is interesting that he takes on a woman's name uh, that almost, you know, the founding fathers are all the time writing under pen names, but it, it's it's virtually always as male pen names. Uh, but but it's, so it's pretty interesting that he takes on, uh, I think, to sort of signal his humility as, a, as a, uh, an anonymous author writing under a pen name, um, and that, but but uh, it is a, a sort of takeoff on some things that Cotton Mather, uh, who is the leading minister in Boston at the time when when Franklin is writing, and somebody that Franklin knows personally, um, had written a, a, a pamphlet called "Essays to Do Good," um, and 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 so Franklin is sort of lampooning that. Kind of Puritan, late Puritan ethos of uh, always, you know, uh, looking for ways as a Christian to do good, and usually Franklin thought that that probably led people to get involved in messing with, you know, being a busybody and and messing with other people's lives. Right. And um, what was the Junto or the Leather Apron Club, and what vision of religion did Franklin propose to that body? Sure. Well, this was a, a early group that he founded of sort of artisans in Philadelphia, um, and there were lots of social clubs being founded at that at that time as part of the Enlightenment. 
that there there was a sense that they needed um, some kind of social outlet that was not church based. Um, and, and of course, one of the functions that church always plays for people or other kinds of religious congregations plays for people is a, a social outlet. Um, but but Franklin was was concerned that for people outside of the church and outside of college, and Franklin never went to college, uh, that that there needed to be some place to discuss uh, religious ideas with like-minded people and, and other kinds of philosophical and scientific topics. Of course, Franklin has enormously wide-ranging interests, uh, famously in, in science, um, but as I'm showing in the book, also in, in religion. And so they, they're trying to discuss things, I think, in, in religion that you, you couldn't really safely ta- discuss in uh, church settings um, because they're, they're basically just discussing you know, issues about how do you know that God exists um, and what, is, what does God require of us and, and those kind of things that um, in, he felt like in a, in a denominational, say a Presbyterian kind of context, which is more dominant in Philadelphia, that you just wouldn't be able to safely uh, discuss these kinds of things. So it's a little more, you know, you wouldn't necessarily call it overtly skeptical and hostile to religion, but you're probably discussing things with, uh, with, with young men that he knows who are artisans. And Franklin, by that time, is in the, in the print business um, that, that he feels like you'll be able to discuss in the junto that you wouldn't be able to dis- discuss in a more denominational environment. Right. And um, did Franklin write in support of polytheism? So this is confusing because, because Franklin writes things that um, can be hard to understand. I mean, he writes so much about theology as a young man, um, and, and some of it is very speculative. Um, and so there, there's one uh, thing that he writes in, 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 in those early years uh, in particular, where he talks about the theory that, um, that all the different religions of the world um, somehow may reflect uh, a, a sort of shadow or an approximation of the one true God but that we can't really know that God. And so that the, the, the Supreme God maybe creates sort of sub deities that, you know, so, so Jesus and Muhammad and, and so forth that, that we can know and are more like us um, that allows us somehow to, to sort of approach some knowledge of the, the ultimate divine. Um, but, but, and there are other times when, when, uh, you know, Franklin will talk about the gods doing things, uh, although the Bible occasionally speaks about the gods too. So, so the, you know, he may just be drawing on the scripture there, but but um, he 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 doesn't really follow these ideas up. It's more it, Franklin's temperament is is to be speculating about. Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Um, and, and he often will, will raise these kind of ideas that sound, for instance, polytheistic, but it, it's much harder to um, pin Franklin down on anything that's sort of a lifelong conviction along these lines. So um, I, I would say he, he proposes, you know, what would it be like if there was 
a, a sort of polytheistic order, but I, I don't think he's very committed to the idea. Right. Well, speaking of things that uh, Franken wrote, uh, religious things that he may really have been committed to, uh, did Franklin create his own prayers? Yes. I mean, he he uh, was always interested in in uh, sort of guides to personal devotion, and 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 so he would he would write his own prayers and uh, you know. Uh, Things that that seem to and Jefferson is this way too, uh, that that uh, for people who are pretty skeptical about traditional religion, they seem interested in having sort of substitute, not just intellectual systems, but ways of personal devotion. And so, uh, yeah, I mean Franklin would would uh, sort of capture snippets of of things that he found inspiring in other writers. Um, and and write his own own prayers and so forth and and he, he seems to be he's a dabbler I mean he and so he 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 uh, you know thinks that 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 if you sample this way in uh, the the kind of the greatest hits of of mostly in the Christian tradition um, that you'll you'll come into something like a, a a truer system of religion but that tradition uh, sort of paralyzes people and doesn't lead to, uh, you know, to true devotion as he saw it. All right. Could you give us a little flavor of what one of these prayers from Franklin was like? Let's see. I'm going to have to write this. <laughs> Remember, this book came out five years ago. Do you have a suggestion on which one you would? I, I, it's a, that's a good question. I, <laughs> I, I like them all. I, 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 I was really uh, taken, um, you know, just as you were saying, by the idea that someone who doesn't seem to fall into kind of the traditional, very maybe literal, um, sort of pious uh, model that we might think of for a, a Christian person, for someone like that to then write their own old prayers, uh, I, I, I just found that fascinating. And I think, uh, as you said, this idea of people who are not quite sort of typical Christians, but who want not only, as you said, the kind of um, intellectual um, you know, stimulation or foundation or whatever that, that faith might be able to, to uh, provide, but even some of the trappings of a religious practice, like a prayer, something that you might think, well, of course, if people were more um, secular-minded, scientific-minded, whatever, well, obviously, they would abandon things like prayers. Uh, for him not only to embrace it, but for him to actually create his own, I think is is really just a, a fascinating thing. Yeah. And, and I think that one of the points I'm I'm trying to make in the book is that a lot of this, I do think it's sincere, but it's also he knows that his parents and then later on his sister, Jane Mecom, uh, who is an evangelical Christian, um, are worried about him. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it, you know, it's sincere. They're, they're not just, you know, busybodies or something. I mean, they, they really are concerned about his eternal fate. And uh, I think some of this is him wanting semi, it's sincere on his part too, but he's wanting them to be reassured that he's okay, that he has a version of Christianity that he's devoted to um, and that they don't need to worry about him. And so, so if he, 
And I, I, again, I think there, there's something like this going on with Jefferson too, that if they have their own system of devotion and, and prayers and, and so forth, that, that they can tell concerned friends or family members that, well, you know, I, I do, I pray too. Um, and, and, and in Franklin's case, I even write my own prayers and, and, but it, it's very individualistic. Um, the, the kind of religion that they are, are practicing. And so in, in, in Franklin and, and Jefferson's case, I mean, if we take them at their word, they do seem to pray a lot, um, which is a different, as you said, is it's kind of a different version of, uh, you know, kind of their skeptical lives than we would uh, naturally assume. Right. Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot with the, <laughs> with the prayer. If there's one that you, you know comes okay. to mind, uh, <laughs> that that that's fine. That'd be great for you to share. But if not, then uh, you know I, I have other things to to delve sure. into. Um, okay. uh, all right. So maybe we'll 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 move on. <laughs> Um, uh, people could certainly uh, um, uh, read the book and and uh, see uh, uh, some um, explicit uh, quotes from from these prayers. Um, okay, so uh, speaking of kind of alternative outlets, so to speak, for um, religion or communal feeling, um, Franklin got involved in the Freemason movement. What was it about Freemasonry that appealed to Franklin? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of the, the founding fathers who are involved with Freemasonry um, and, you know, critics of the, the, you know, of Freemasonry and the founding fathers would say virtually all of them were were Freemasons, um, which which I don't think is true, but Franklin definitely was a, a Freemason, uh, and he was um, uh, instrumental in introducing Freemasonry into uh, the American colonies, and then the United States. And this is a um, it, it is kind of an enlightened religion. Uh, there, there's definitely a lot of Christian content in it. Um, but it styles itself as being a religion of, of rationality and learning and science um, and, and devotion, too, um, that, that is fit for uh, the, the you know, men, especially of an enlightened age. Um, and, and so uh, it, it attracts um, people like Voltaire in France, for instance, um, and, and Franklin is is uh, affiliated with Voltaire's Lodge for a little while when, when Franklin is in Paris. Um, and and it, it's an international religion. It's, it's a, you know, cosmopolitan, up to date with kind of the most, uh, you know, current learning and, and so forth. And, and, and so for someone like Franklin, I think that, that Freemasonry is, is, is a good example. I mean, I don't know that he has ever that committed of a, of a Freemason. I think, you know, somebody like Washington may be more uh, committed to it. Um, but he, he, he sees it, I think, as a, a, a really great alternative for someone who doesn't want to reject religion altogether, um, but wants to have a kind of anti-traditional kind of, uh, of, of religion. And, and um, uh, uh, someone who sees Traditional Christianity is sometimes kind of anti-intellectual, anti-learning. Um, whether that's fair or not, he, Franklin, I think, tends to see 
traditional Christianity that way. And so Freemasonry gives him uh, uh, an alternative, but it's also, it's some ways like the Junto. Um, it's, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a social outlet um, for men who style themselves as being enlightened um, to, to be able to talk about philosophical issues and, and learning uh, and religion and devotion to God um, in, in, a, in a more uh, flexible kind of, you know, pro-learning, pro, you know, this, this, this kind of thing. So, uh, and, and, and would be less dogmatic. Um, and, and so that, that's, I think, what attracts him to Freemasonry. But I, I'm also mindful that, you know, Franklin, you know, everywhere is, is kind of thinking, he's, he's very speculative, as I said, about religion. So he's always talking about kind of new social outlets, new opportunities, new ways to organize people that are, that is kind of moving past traditional church structures. Um, and, and so I, I don't get the sense that Franklin is ever uh, that interested in sort of the details of Freemason doctrine, uh, of which there is some, uh, but but he he's definitely interested in Freemasonry as a kind of social structure for people like him. Right. And um, uh, Franklin focused on uh, living an ethical life and helping others. I mean, that c- clearly comes through in a lot of his writing. How did he feel about slavery? Well, Franklin, uh, a lot of people don't know that Franklin owned slaves for much of his adult life. Um, now, he was not uh, he, he was not invested in slavery the way that, say, Thomas Jefferson was. Um, at, at, you know, the, the Southern founders tended overall, as you would expect, to have a, a deeper uh, structural investment and financial investment in uh, enslaved people uh, as part of their uh, their personal fortune. Um, and, and so Franklin was not that way, although we do think that he made a good amount of money off of selling uh, uh, ads in, in the Pennsylvania Gazette um, about runaway slaves. Uh, colonial American newspapers were full of ads about people trying to track down uh, slaves who had run away from captivity uh, and and Franklin sold a lot of ads as the editor of Pennsylvania Gazette. So um, it's not just his slave owning um, that that leads him to be uh, complicit in American slavery, but but runaway slave ads. Uh, he would he would uh, run ads in his newspaper for the sale of of enslaved people, and some of the language he used in the newspaper sometimes suggested that he may have been involved in uh, slave trafficking himself um, because he would run ads that would say, you know, such and such Negroes for sale, uh, inquire at the the offices of the Pennsylvania Gazette. Um, But we don't know for sure whether he actually was personally involved in in selling slaves. If he was, then then he was deeply, deeply involved in the the slave trade. Um, But Late in life, um, he started to be uh, exposed more and more to anti-slavery activists in Philadelphia, um, and and he found their arguments to be persuasive, um, and so he uh, divested himself of of all of his uh, slaves. He never had 
an enormous number of, of slaves that he personally owned, uh, but he did have some. And, and so uh, by the time of the, the revolution, he had largely divested himself of all, all of his you know, slaves either that he owned or rented or rented out to other people. Um, and, and so uh, after the, the revolution is over, he um, gets involved in the early uh, American anti-slavery movement as, you know, maybe a way of sort of atoning for his past involvement with, with slavery. And certainly there's no reason to doubt his, uh, the sincerity of his anti-slavery uh, convictions, although, you know, you, you do wonder, um, you, you know, he, he doesn't seem understandably to want to talk about the fact that he himself spent more of his life as a slave owner and, and involved in at least advertising slave trafficking than he did uh, late in life as an anti-slavery uh, writer. But it is true that he concludes his life, under, unlike most of the major founders, he concludes his life uh, having enlisted in an anti-slavery cause, uh, which is something that certainly the Southern founders would would never have done. Um, and 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 so uh, he he uh, ends his life and from a modern perspective, kind of come, having come over to the uh, ethically correct position. Right, and uh, you mentioned previously that that Franklin had a close relationship with George Whitfield, uh, a preacher and founder of the evangelical movement. What was the nature of his relationship with Whitfield? So George Whitfield was uh, arguably the most famous person in America in the 1740s. Um, he, he's, I mean, in terms of name recognition, probably more people knew the name of the King of England, uh, the, the success of King George's in those decades, but, uh, definitely more people had heard Whitfield preach or had read something by Whitfield than, than any person in America. Um, and of course, most of the American colonists had never seen the King of England in, in person, uh, and, and so um, Whitfield is is from England, but he makes seven trips to the American colonies during his lifetime, and especially in the early 1740s, just takes America by storm. Uh, enormously popular preacher and writer, and his sermons, and he has very popular travel journals. Whitfield does. And so when Franklin starts hearing about Whitfield in the late 1730s, uh, by that point, Franklin is running the Pennsylvania Gazette. And he, uh, Franklin is skeptical about the, the reported crowd numbers because the, the, the English newspapers are reporting that tens of thousands of people are coming to hear uh, Whitfield preach in, in London in particular. I mean, there were reports in the late 1730s of Whitfield attracting crowds as large as 80,000 people. And of course, this is in, in a pre-amplification age, pre-electricity. Uh, Franklin is working on that, but, but <laughs> they haven't developed it yet. And, and so, uh, you know, Whitfield doesn't have microphones, but, but still, um, certainly there, you know, there have to be crowds as large as maybe 20,000 people coming to see him at one time. And uh, Franklin is is intrigued, but but skeptical. Um, and and so when Whitfield comes to Philadelphia um, as part of his preaching tour in in America, uh, Whitfield is uh, 
needing to uh, tap into the printing networks in, in, in America. And so Whitfield basically says, you know, tell me who, who's the best media man in Philadelphia and people direct him to Franklin in spite of the fact that Franklin is a religious skeptic. And so uh, they strike up this business relationship where Franklin begins printing uh, most of, of, of Whitfield's major works. Um, and, uh, and, and Franklin ends up making a phenomenal amount of money off of selling Whitfield's uh, imprints. And, and, uh, and Whitfield totally uh, transforms the whole print market in, in America. We think that between about 1738 and 1741, the total print output in America basically doubles. And, and uh, that, the, the whole doubling is almost all because of Whitfield. Um, and, and, and so Franklin sees this and he, he knows, oh, I can make a ton of money off of this guy. Um, and he does. Um, and, and, uh, but, but Franklin uh, not only is printing Whitfield's materials, but he prints anti-Whitfield materials too, and, and Whitfield's fine with that. I mean, Whitfield has no problem because he knows, you know, controversy will just attract more attention to my preaching. And that's that's fine. And so he doesn't put any kind of constraints on Franklin about what he can and can't publish. Um, and, and so this is, in all seriousness, I mean, this is part of the reason why Franklin is able to retire early from printing uh, and has become independently wealthy is because of his relationship with Whitfield. So, so it starts as, as a business relationship that's very congenial for both of them because Franklin does a great job distributing and selling uh, Whitfield's materials. And then, and then Franklin makes a lot of money for himself doing this. But in time, I think they become pretty close friends. Um, and it, it's a wonderful relationship, I think, because they both are so clear about their religious differences, um, and 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 Whitfield, uh, uh, as is Whitfield's want. I mean, he he pulls no punches about telling Franklin that you need to believe in Jesus for salvation. You need to be born again, uh, and and you're not, you know, you're not okay religiously. And Franklin responds and and says, "Well, you know, I I think I am okay, and you know, and I'm not sure that I do need to be born again, and and uh, and I think I'm fine." Um, but what what's so special about it is that they're able to have a friendship that I think it really is a a, a close friendship. Though they don't they don't see each other that often because Whitfield is constantly traveling. Um, but but they sort of I think they kind of understand each other especially once Franklin becomes a celebrity. Um, Franklin's celebrity comes about 10 years after Whitfield's. Um, and, and Franklin is never as famous in his own time as Whitfield is in his. Um, but I think that they kind of understand the common experience of being celebrities um, and having you know lots and lots of people who are sort of seeking their time and attention um, but they never uh, sort of give up on the idea that they can speak very frankly to one another about their religious differences. And I think in that sense, it's a it's a friendship that would be rare in their time, but even more rare today that you would have people who have such distinct religious differences who also remain pretty close friends. Indeed. <laughs> um, did Franklin use the Bible to promote militias in the 1740s? 
He did. Uh, he he. Uh, one of Franklin's uh, most uh, earliest political writings was an argument. Uh, of, it was a pamphlet called Plain Truth, where he was making an argument for Pennsylvania to have a militia. Uh, that would be ready to call on in in case of uh, invasion by the French or the Spanish, um, and this was this was a live possibility that that uh, the colonies were almost always either at war or at risk of war with uh, the, the uh, Catholic powers of, of France and Spain, um, and and Franklin was frustrated that um, that Pennsylvania because it was controlled politically and religiously by the Quakers, who were pacifists, uh, that they were unwilling to have a, a, a militia, a, a colonial militia to call on in the case of, of invasion. And, and so Franklin uh, was not a pacifist, and, and, and he thought that there was actually a Christian argument for um, uh, defense uh, uh, of the colony. And so he made a Christian, and, but also just a biblical argument for why he thought this was right. And so he, he actually, one of the main arguments that he made uh, to uh, most modern readers would be totally obscure. Uh, I think it's in the book of Judges chapter 19 uh, the, about something about some priests and the, the expedition of the Danites in Israel and stuff. Uh, and But it, it tells you, first of all, what a deeply... Uh, you know, informed biblical reader that Franklin is himself. But, uh, you know, it's hard for us today, even for someone like me. I mean, I read the Bible regularly, too, for devotional purposes. But I have to admit, that one went right over my head. I mean, I, I thought the ex- expedition, the Danites, and what? What what are you talking about? But to, to, to Franklin, uh, this is a popular pamphlet, and he assumed that most of his readers would know that reference, or at least a, had heard of it, and it tells you what a deeply biblicist uh, culture that Franklin is is writing into, um, and and Franklin is in him, himself as a as a pamphleteer is perfectly capable of of writing for that culture because he knows as much about the Bible as anyone in his audience. So that that I think is important um, to remember about Franklin that skeptic though he was, he was not just marginally familiar with the Bible. He, he knew the text of very comprehensively and was capable of calling on it uh, in, in uh, not just theological writing, but also political writing. All right. And as, as you write in the book, I mean, and as people know about Franklin, he was a very popular writer. I mean, he was someone who had a very, very keen sense of what, his readers would know about like it's like it's hard to imagine in other words that he was off the mark here that he thought oh yes everyone would know about this and then it turned out no one did like he was someone who had a very deep sense of what the average person um you know the average reader of his uh of his um you know material what they would know what they would understand and as you say if if he went to this passage in the Bible, it's clear that his average readers really did understand this and that this would resonate with them on some level. Yes, that's that's right. And, and I think that that's common in the founding period, that when you look at Tom Paine's common sense, uh, a, sig- a really critical 
portion of that fairly short book is on 1 Samuel 8 about the Israelites asking for a king uh, and, and Payne, also a skeptic, uh, you know, writing, writing and drawing on the Bible, Patrick Henry's Liberty or Death speech, very short speech, full of references to the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and, and so th- this is just popular persuasion in the time of the revolution and, and that, that the, the sort of coin of the realm, as it were, is, is the Bible itself. And so it's, it's just, a, especially for Franklin, is a very common source of examples and anecdotes and allusions when he's uh, writing in this political persuasion mode. Right. And you note that Franklin uh, created a checklist of 13 virtues um, uh, that he felt were important for for people's daily life. Uh, In what ways were these virtues, his virtues, similar to and also different from Puritan ethics? Well, I think that they're very similar um, in the the sense of what kinds of virtues, you know, love, frugality, honesty— you know, temperance, these kind of things would be um, very close to uh, the the just traditional Christian ethics, um, uh, you know, Jewish and Christian ethics. And so um, he, uh, I think in that, in that list of virtues, what you see him doing is again saying, I, I can be devout. I can, I can be very concerned with ethics but not from a traditional Christian perspective, um, and and I, I think that there was a, a that kind of impulse to, I, I mean, none of the founders would say, you know, we don't need virtue in society. I mean, I, I, that it, it was just a, a given, uh, and, I, and I think in our way, it's a it's a given today that you, you know the republic needs people of virtue who will be you know neighborly and. And kind and and you know benevolent and charitable and these kinds of things, but uh, the traditional Christian view was that one has to have a right relationship with God before you can manifest true virtue. And I think that Franklin is again experimenting with the idea that if we just focus on the virtues themselves, that 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 you you can have a commitment to that that's born out of uh, education or uh, just, you know, individual conviction or your relationship with God. Um, but that the, the thing that we need is, is, the, is the virtuous commitment, not, you know, some doctrinal belief about God being this or that way, uh, according to some denominational tradition. So, um, but it is interesting to watch Franklin. I mean, he, for some periods of his life, actually tracked, you know, the way that he complied with that list of, of virtues. And, and in that, I think that Franklin is, is trying to show a certain kind of seriousness about his own uh, virtuous, uh, you know, practices and, and uh, rituals and behavior um, so that he, he, he wasn't just speculating about this, but he was trying to actually put it into practice and I do think that that Franklin, by the way, is a very uh, charitable person. I mean, he he uh, helps to found the first hospital in Philadelphia, 
And when he makes the argument for why people should support this, it, it's one of the most explicitly Christian things that he ever writes, that he makes an argument for uh, charity and hospitality and taking care of the poor and vulnerable as a Christian obligation. Um, and he, you know, he gave a lot of money. I mean, he was independently wealthy and in a position to do that, but he gave a lot of money to charity himself. The one the one virtue that I'm not sure how closely he tracked it was about his relationship with women. Uh, and, and it, you know, he's known for sort of hobnobbing with the ladies of Paris. And, and, and that's, that's true, but he also, uh, did not treat his wife, uh, uh, very charitably at all. Uh, and he basically ignored her for a number of years while she was descending into uh, desperate health problems. Um, and and this partly accounts for his estrangement with his son, uh, William, that he, some of his children just thought he taught, treated his wife in an appalling way. Hmm. And um, I'm curious, is there a relationship between Franklin's proverbs about achieving wealth and religion? Well, this has been uh, discussed for a uh, a century and more, especially because of the work of uh, Max Weber, um, the, the the German sociologist, that that he proposed in his classic thesis about the the Protestant work ethic that that there's this sort of in Franklin you see the, almost the epitome of this kind of secularized Protestantism um, that uh, the 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 Puritans classically believe that that every person has a calling. Uh, vocationally, um, and that that you honor God through hard work and and integrity and business and um, and those kind of you know business virtues, and that that in the the American tradition th- there becomes this kind of secularized version of of honoring God in your calling that the God part of it in Franklin's case sort of drops out, but the the ethics sort of remain the same, and that you see that. Uh, manifested among other things in Frank Franklin's, uh, you know, his poor Richard, uh, you, you know, in his almanacs and and so forth. That is another thing that he made a lot of money off of. Um, that he had these, you know, you, you know business ethics and and um, uh, about you know you, effective use of time and and frugality and these these sorts of things that that uh, you see a kind of secularized Puritanism in that. I mean, I might uh, say that, you know, I think Franklin wasn't as secular maybe as Weber thought that he was, um, because he, he sure did seem to keep thinking about God and, and have relationships with traditional uh, Christians, including George Whitfield and his sister Jane Mecom um, and, and, and so forth. So I think he, it, God was still very much on Franklin's mind. Uh, but I, I think Weber is, you know, I'm I'm somewhat sympathetic to this idea that that some of the the ideas about, and you see it even in today's more secular business literature and self improvement and that kind of thing, in which uh, you know Franklin is always a kind of iconic figure in that that literature. But it, a lot of it has almost no explicit reference to God at all. Uh, that that Weber would have kind of understood that that you know, pop business literature uh, as being coming from Franklin in a lot of ways. All right. And so you mentioned early on that 
people today, Americans today, are often very interested in the religious uh, beliefs or lack thereof of the founding fathers as uh, a way to kind of position themselves and think about the questions of uh, separation of church and state and so on. So I'm wondering, what was Franklin's attitude regarding the separation of church and state? Well, Franklin definitely wanted uh, the the states and and the new United States to not have official denominations, and and in in some ways that was unnatural for him uh, because by by the time he was in his teens, Pennsylvania had become his home colony and and then home state, uh, and and Pennsylvania never had an official denomination. Now the Quakers were dominant, but they did not create a tax supported. Uh, and what, you know, what the founders called an establishment of religion, um, and so uh, in in the 1780s, when when uh, in 1770s and 80s, when Pennsylvania was framing its new state constitution, he definitely wanted there to be separation of church and state in an official sense. But but that never would have meant to Franklin that religion is somehow absent from the public sphere. Franklin himself. Uh, is constantly, you know, in his speeches at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he's constantly citing the Bible as he's given to do. Um, and there's there's a very strange moment at the Constitutional Convention when Franklin asked the delegates to begin sessions with prayer. Um, and, uh, you know, so again, you have Franklin here. He's, by this point, he's quite elderly, um, and uh, Franklin, the deist and skeptic, is asking the delegates to begin sessions at the convention with prayer, and they're framing the Constitution. Um, and he says, you know, we should be calling on the Father of Lights, which is a, a biblical phrase, but it's also a kind of enlightened way of talking about God. Um, you know, we, we should be calling on the Father of Lights for wisdom, and, and it's foolish for us not to be praying to open sessions um, but the motion wasn't adopted. Um, it's, it, uh, when you hear this in uh, kind of Christian conservative circles, sometimes they'll they'll say that Franklin proposed prayer, but they forget to mention that the, it's it's almost more stunning that the convention didn't adopt his motion. They, they you know they couldn't agree about what chaplain they're going to have and this sort of so they just don't do anything about it and they don't open sessions with prayer. Um, and, and so. Uh, uh, you know, Franklin in that case is almost um, you know making an argument for more presence of God, more presence of prayer in the public sphere, and this is why people like Franklin get sort of uh, you know picked up by people say on the Christian right. They say, well, oh, you know, Franklin was pushing for there to be prayer, and you know, in in American public life and so forth, but they forget that the. The convention didn't do anything about his proposal, and Franklin was really kind of angry about the fact that they didn't. I mean, he thought, "You all are fools. We should be praying," uh, but but not enough delegates thought that was important enough to do something about it. Right. And did Franklin have an opinion about the government paying the clergy? Well, uh, he certainly wouldn't have wanted uh, an, an established church. And one of the things that an established church would have done is is to have, uh, a, you know, the pastors when in the states, colonies and states where the pastors, uh, where they have an established church, the pastors effectively become uh, 
uh, uh, employees of the state. Um, and uh, Franklin would not have have wanted that. And so that one of the great divisions of the time of the founding is about whether the state governments in particular should continue to have that kind of established church relationship. Um, but but Franklin in general, I think, would not have wanted that. Right. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we are out of time. So I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.